This is Tom Derland, your host for Conversations with Classic Boats, the podcast that talks to boats. We're back for season four. This season is about famous designers and homegrown builders, the oldest one design class in the world, and because sailors appreciate gorgeous boats of all kinds, a trip to the source of the antique spade boat. We thank you for listening and subscribing to make Conversations with Classic Boats, the leading specialty boating podcast. Subscribers, you're part now of a Conversations community, and we thank you for coming back again and again for the stories not on the surface of sailing. To our partners, from Newport to San Diego, the publications, the community sailing sites, the biggest blog in the business, we thank you all for carrying conversations to sailors curious for the stories we tell. 100,000 sailing households from Annapolis to New England reach us online. And through our publishing partners, Windcheck Magazine in Connecticut and Spinsheet in Annapolis. And of course, don't forget Mad Martha at Team One Newport. You gotta love those lines. Mad Martha, not angry, just a little bit crazy. All of them have played a role in making conversations with classic boats what it is today. You all are part of the conversation. Did you race in a Heli Hansen regatta last season? The conversation's card was in your skipper's bag. Okay, okay, we listen, you say. What do you have that's the new, new thing? Conversations will be adding in 2023, quote, classic conversations. We will alternate our deep dives into the hidden parts of the sport of sailing with a new face-to-face, off-the-record, candid set of exchanges with whomever we think can bring you the most entertaining story. Here at Classic Conversations, talking to me. Listen for it in January 2023. Our good friend Dave Perry will kick off Classic Conversations. You will come to the GAM. G-A-M. Look it up. So for this episode 25, we deliver as promised last summer, inside look on a solo sailing expedition. We come to you with the story of solo sailing and long-distance routes. It's a timely episode, given the recent news of the Route de Rum, single-handed sailors wrestling huge multi-hulls from Saint-Malo, France, to Guadeloupe. And now all that attention will move on to following crews tuning up high-tech Volvos for the ocean race. And then, of course, on to the America's Cup, Barcelona, to bust up a lot of gear. Our sailor in this episode went voyaging 15 years ago, when the technology was a lot simpler. No foils, simple navigational tools, basic food. For our sailor, it is more man against the sea, or as he points out, in collaboration with the sea, the sea that is greater than all of us. We picked the star of our show from a group of solo sailors that were part of the exhibit from May to August at Mystic Seaport Museum. Storyboats, the tales they tell. There are three respective boats were on exhibit. No people, just their boats. 
we thought we had to rectify that and hear from the sailors themselves. Because it's the sailors that tell the stories. And we had the good fortune to spend time with three of them. Clay Burkhalter, Steve Callahan, and Dwight Collins. These sailors have a few things obvious in common. Our friend Herman Melville summed them up in their mindset for adventure in Moby Dick. And I quote, With other men, perhaps, such things would not have been inducements. But as for me, I am tormented with an everlasting itch for things remote. I love to sail forbidden seas and land on barbarous coasts. Unquote. What about these three sailors, all of them from New England? They're solo sailors. They had dreams of doing what they did at an early age. They at some point realized that they were way, way over their head. But they prevailed. This is primarily an interview episode, so I want to give every minute to our guests, so introductions will be brief. Our leadoff hitter, Clay Burkhalter, Stonington, Connecticut, transat sailor, in the 2007 race from France to Brazil. He came in 13th of 89 entrants, then he sailed home. This first part of the podcast will be all Clay, and in the second part, which we will release in a couple of weeks, we'll see Steve Callahan, Lemoyne, Maine, in a similar transat, hold by a whale, then a survivor at sea for 76 days, recorded in the best-selling 1980s book Adrift. And finally, we'll finish up with Dwight Collins, Darien, Connecticut, pedaled the Atlantic in 41 days in a Bruce Kirby design, not a laser. Steve and Dwight will share the sequel of Solo Sailors in a couple of weeks. But now let's dive in with Clay, coming to us from his den in southeastern Connecticut last summer. He had just finished delivering one boat, and he was talking to me so he could go deliver the next boat. Well, I'm here today with Clay Burkhalter, who I've seen in many different boats, small boats, big boats. He's a big guy, so I don't know what he's what he was doing, thinking when he was working with this particular boat, because it's a small boat. I can remember I never sailed in it, but I did step in it, and it struck me as being a very small boat. I'll let him describe what it was, what the race was, how he built the boat. Um, I'll ask a few questions, but uh, you'll see when you look at the podcast for this part two of this episode, some terrific pictures of him sailing the boat. But anyway, let me just turn it over to you, Clay, and take it from the top. Yeah, uh, so the race was, uh, the race across the Atlantic was in 2007, although the project started in 2005. Um, mm -hmm. The project being, I, I became interested in the class. I had a friend, French friend who was um, doing the 2005 race on on one of these 21 footers. They're called they're the 6.5 meter class. So the boats are 21 feet long. They're three meters wide, so maximum of 10 feet, more or less. Mm -hmm. They have a draft of about six feet, and then there's a limitation on how tall the mast is. And 
I had never really paid attention or heard of the class. It's mostly a European event. It started in... And what is the race called? Is it, what is the? It's called the Mini Transat Race. Mini, Mini Transat being Transat for Transatlantic. It and the boats are often, even though they're the six point five meter boats, they're often referred to as the Mini Transat boat. The race started in it was uh, nineteen seventy seven actually mm -hmm. in okay. England. The first two events were England um, seventy seven seventy nine. Wow. I think it was the second running of the race that this American, I don't remember his, I'd have to look it up his, sure. his name. He was sailing on a boat called American Express. Okay. And he won the race, an Whoa. American guy. And the reason that he won is the class is considered a development class. In other words, right. you, as long as you stay within certain parameters, you can do all sorts of things. And he was the first, his boat was the first one to have water ballast. Ah, water ballast. Ah. And so he won the race. And then the next running in 81, the, the competition moved to France. They came up with the sponsors. The race started there. And it happens, happens every two years, odd, odd years. And the race in in all of its runnings <clears throat> for many years it went from france you stopped in the canary islands for maybe 10 days and then it continued on to the caribbean okay usually guadalupe okay and in those days in the early days there were very little qualification events or races or prep preparation pretty much if you showed up at the starting line on the on a 21 foot boat <laughs> you could do the race. And I think maybe there were some very minor qualifications, but so they would get a lot of participants and competitors that would start out on this race and they would get to the Canary Islands and they would call it quits there right. because people would go to get from the Atlantic coast of France or from the first few years in England to the Canaries is about seven eight days that can be a tough ride especially in the events out of france across the bay of biscay yeah that's where the water's shallow and the currents are strong and storms move through so it can sure. be tough there and then going down the coasts of spain and portugal you can get big winds along there so a lot of boats would pull in there and go i don't know what i was thinking i'm mm -hmm. not doing this anymore and so they would have a smaller group that would continue on as the years went by they became more stringent on their qualification. You had to, the year that I did it, and those and the rules have been around for a while, we had to do a thousand mile solo qualifying non-race event. Right. For mine, they approved, a, they have two designated courses in Europe that you do when you notify the race committee or the organizers of the, the mini transat class you're starting and finishing and you take logs and pictures of landmarks on the way sure. for me they approved a course that went from uh beaufort north carolina down around grand bahama and up finishing in charleston it was about 1100 miles got it and 
So they came up with these stringent qualifications. You had to do that, and then you had to do up to 1,500 miles in pre-race or pre-transatlantic races. And during the year in France, in the summer, they have six or seven or eight of these races of various lengths. Some of them are 300 miles, some of them are 800 miles. They have some in the Atlantic and some in the Med. It professionalism went up a lot. And as the years went by, these boats got more complicated. They, the, as I mentioned, the guy who, the American one, did this with water ballast tanks. And the French and some of the British, the French very much so, are big offshore shorthanded sailors. Mm -hmm. They have tremendous training programs around the country in different places you can go to. Sailing is a huge sport in France. Everybody follows it. You could be talk to a farmer in the middle of the country mm -hmm. and he'll know who all the big sailors are and how they're doing in these yep. smaller boat races and some of these big boat races that go around the world. And so they um, really took a, a keen interest in this class. And they, as every year went by, there were new developments. The next major one was Canning Keel, where the keel swings back and forth with a big lead yep. torpedo bulb on the bottom. And you swing it over to sure. the upwind side or windward side to give you stability. And then. So, like a then, Comanche. Exactly. And a lot of the development in this class translated up and in eventually into bigger boats. Mm -hmm. The canning keels were first introduced on these boats. Okay, the big boats have all hydraulics and push buttons running those things. We have block and tackle sure. that you grind it in. Um, and then eventually things like canning mast and wing mast and very complicated stuff, carbon fiber mm -hmm. instructions. When the year that I did the race, um, we had 89 boats. Eventually it got to the point where having one of these fancy carbon fiber, canning keel, water ballast boats, it got quite expensive. I would think so. And a lot of the French sailors and some of the British sailors and some of the Spanish and Italian sailors, they would get pretty significant sponsorship. Mm -hmm either from banks or insurance companies or food companies. Sure. And because of that, they were able to have designs and build these custom boats that were the latest technology, the lightest boats, really fancy 21-foot boats. Mm -hmm. And so it got to the point where there was a section that it really became expensive to buy, to get involved. Sure. Especially if you were building a new one, if you could buy one that was a few years old and and do some stuff to it. It, it was still expensive. Mm -hmm. So they developed what they called the, the the fancy carbon fiber custom boats were called the prototype division. Mm -hmm. And they had another division called the series division. They looked the same. They were all based on proven prototype designs, pretty much all French designs. But the boats were made out of fiberglass. They had aluminum mass. They had fixed keels. They didn't have water ballast tanks. Got it. And so you could get into one of those for half of the money, if not even less than that. And so the participation went up significantly. Mm -hmm. 
And so in the year that I did it, we had pretty much half and half, 45 of the boats were series Perfect. boats mm -hmm. and 45 of the boats were prototype boats or 44. Mm -hmm. The speed differences, there are times where those series boats weren't really any slower. And there's times where they might be 10 or 15 sure. or 20% slower. So mm -hmm. typically the prototypes would arrive first and the series yeah. boats would start coming in. If you had a series boat that was way up in the prototype division and the finishing. So you're doing good. Right? Well. Incredible job. Yeah. So the year that I did the race, and it had been that way for a couple of years and it continued on for a couple of years or a couple of runnings after I did it. It went from France, uh, La Rochelle, France in the Atlantic coast of mm -hmm. France, Bay of Biscay to the island of Madeira in, uh, which is a Portuguese island south mm -hmm. of the Azores and north of the Canaries. We stopped there for a week. So you race there, everybody stops. They have events and awards for the first leg you, and your time is recorded. And then you continue on from there about 10 days later. And we race from there to Salvador, Brazil. And the first leg from France to the island of Madeira was about 1200 miles. And it took us, it took me, I think it was six days. You're doing 200 yeah. days, on 200 miles a day on a 2100 foot boat. That's moving. Yeah. And then the second leg from Madeira to Brazil was uh, about 3,000 miles, mm -hmm. 19 days. 19 days. And sort of to back up a little bit to, to the creation of my bow, which was a big part of it, really, and, and a big part of my ability to pull this off. When I first heard about the class, I went to my uncle Rod Johnstone, the designer of J boats, who I'd been I started sailing with when I was five years old. Sure. So at the time of this, my interest in 2005, I was 47. So I went up. Rod and I live in the same town. I went up sure. to his design office and I said, "Rod, would you design me one of these boats?" And he sure he said, "Sure." What the hell is it? And so. Mm -hmm. We looked online and uh, we spent about five months going back and forth between different designs, bigger, smaller, and all the European French design, the French and the British, and the, they're all big. It's 21 foot is small, but it's a big 21 footer. They're very fat on the back end you're allowed a maximum beam of about 10 feet. Well, they carry that not only it's the 10 feet in the middle of the boat, mm -hmm. it's pretty much 10 feet on the stern of the boat. They carry that, it looks like a flying wedge. Mm -hmm. And it's mostly because this race is downwind, the wind behind you, or the wind is on the side of you where you're reaching along and you have your keel over and your water ballast tanks full. And so a big fat boat, gives you more stability when it wants to heel over and push part of the boat in the water you can carry more sail mm -hmm. and so these boats really you have all these things to try and keep it flat the water ballast can and keel and the form of the shape of the boat and then you have massive sail plans on these things mm -hmm. just uh, 
incredible amount of sail. My boat, the spinnaker pole on the boat, the boat's 21 feet long, the spinnaker pole stuck out 10 feet off the front of the boat. So it was just huge. I had so many people help out. And part of the reason was I didn't just show up in France and buy an existing boat and people go, right. that's cool that Clay's doing something. And Rodney designed the boat and we basically built it here at Dodson Boatyard. I had a company and small company in Maine help me with a haul in the deck. Yeah. But I spent almost 12 months in a shed at Dodson Boatyard working on this boat. Rodney would come down almost every day and help and look. And I had more local people showing up. I was going to say, it was like it was a tourist attraction, as I recall. Everybody would come and some not only would look, but some people would help me for a day or days. Um, whether it was painting or doing wiring, um, electronics, and it was, um, the local help was tremendous. And because of that, it also became um, a way for people to help me financially, which was a tremendous thing. I did various local talks mm -hmm. uh, a few times at Stonington Harbor Yacht Club, had the boat or partially finished boat out front mm -hmm. so people could touch it and feel it. And so more and more people became involved, some local uh, companies, lots of individuals giving you know, from small to big donations. And because of this, we were able to build the boat here, all the supplies and parts and sails and masts were all done uh, in either Connecticut or Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. And the launching of the boat in 2005, uh, 2006, excuse mm -hmm. me, March 2006, happened at Dodson Boatyard in, it was a cold, it wasn't raining, but gray day. And mm -hmm. there must have been 100, 120 people that showed up at this event sure. in the water. Rodney and I climbed on the thing and sailed out beyond the breakwaters. There were no other boats in the harbor and holding our breath, hoping everything worked. And then within three days, I had the boat packed up on a trailer to go down to Beaufort, North Carolina to do this solo sail to get mm -hmm. that done because I had a scheduled shipping to France and I had a company, a Dutch um, shipping company. Sure. Who somehow heard about me and took an interest in it hmm. and they shipped the boat for free. And so I already had a schedule after the solo race so i had to keep moving along sure and so i took the boat down to beaufort north carolina my close friend ron lewis helped me get it down there and helped me put it together and i took off on that thing off beaufort heading for grand bahama and i got out near the gulf stream got in the gulf stream the first night on this boat the wind was against the gulf stream the waves are big i didn't Ooh. intend to be there I had a ship coming in the Gulf Stream somewhat towards me. I had the boom rigged so it wouldn't fly across the boat if the boat. By the time I changed course, headed back towards the coast, got out of the Gulf Stream, I went below. So I've been on this project for, I don't know, 13, 14 months. I went yep. down below. I laid in the bunk, had very little sail up so the boat was easy to control, had it on autopilot, and I laid there and I said, Oh my God, what have you gotten yourself into? <laughs> <laughs> and I, thought, 
I thought about all the people that helped me out and all the work it took. And I said, you can't just call it quits on this. Yeah. And, you know, it was the first day of a 1100 mile solo sale. It was going to take me you know, six, seven days wow. without pushing it hard. But each day got better. And yeah. you get slowly used to it. And, and um, whether it's, just the lack of sleep or the intimidating situation of you know sailing at night now on that event that type of thing okay i would sail at night very conservative just main up or a reef in the main and the autopilot can handle it no problem and wake up and look around and it wasn't long after that when i got to france finally uh, that summer and started doing some of these qualifying races that I was doing a race to the Azores from a place called La Sable de Lome, which is Atlantic mm -hmm. coast as well, the famous place for the start yeah. of the Vendée Globe. Vendée Globe, yeah. And I was doing well the first day and first night. And then I, well, I think top five. And then I, the next day and night, I was going fast. And it was really windy the second night. And I said, I don't feel confident with this boat on the autopilot at night with a spinnaker up. I'll just sail with a man and a jib. I'll go nine and 10 knots instead of 12. Right. And that's fine. Nobody else is going crazy out here. I woke up the next day. They give, they had a shortwave radio broadcast for these long, really long distance races. Sure. Azores was the longest one prior to the mini transat. And they were once a day, at a specified time, they would come on and he would have a little Sony or Grundig shortwave thing. And you could sometimes hear him, sometimes not, but they would go down and tell you where you were first, yes. this boat second, mm -hmm. and they would give you some weather updates. And I dropped to 20th place. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's when I realized that these, especially the French sailors, the top sailors, they're pushing all the time at night they have big sails up spinnakers up the wind changes a little dies some they put a bigger spinnaker up mm. when it gets too windy they don't just take the spinnaker down they put a smaller one up and but you survived so I, I mean the boat held together until you right you, you have any well I actually the next day after that i did one night of that but i didn't have my real big spinnaker up and so the third morning about 600 miles out, 500 miles out, I had a big spinnaker up and I was going fast, surfing at, sailing at 12 and surfing at 15 knots. And I came over a wave and came barreling down a wave and the bow submarine in the wave, into the wave in front of me, water coming over yep. the boat. And the mast broke and went oh. over the front of the boat. Ooh. And so this was a year before the mini transat. I was 700 miles from the finish of the race, but I had enough of a stump left yeah. in that I was able to rig up these smaller storm sails. It was downwind of the Azores. So I managed to get there 700 miles away without help and actually finish the race within two hours of the time limit. Wow. Uh, and on these boats, they don't, the only thing they allow is a VHF radio 
again, these little Sony one way, you know, people sure. have these, these tiny $300 Sony or Grundig radios. Sure. You can put a wire up in the mast to try and make the reception better. You have that. You can have a GPS that has no chart plotting function, just gives you numbers. Yep. And you can have a little, in those days, I think maybe now they might have an AIS uh, ship identification thing. Probably. In those days, I had a little, like a radar detector you might have in your car. Sure. To tell me if it was a ship putting out a radar. Mm -hmm. And and we had a little tracker beacon on the back of the boat. So the race committee could always see where we were. And it had three buttons on it. You couldn't talk, but if they would tell you in advance what they would want you to use these three buttons for. And mm -hmm. if, if they saw on the tracker that you were not moving for a while, because maybe you were making repairs or something, they would tell you, after you've done this for a couple hours of not moving, we want you to put, push button one and let us know you're okay. Yeah. Because now that if, they don't, if you don't do that, they're worried you fell over the side or something. Right. And if button two was you're broken your mast, but you're okay. And button three was, you need help. But it wasn't such an emergency that you would put off an emergency beacon, which would yes. send out the authorities. Need it. it was a distress so I, it was a mayday call. Right. So I pushed button two, and I said, I broke my mask, but I'm okay. And in that particular race, there were 70 boats going to the Azores. And in every race, whether it's a short one, or a medium one like that, or the mini transit race, in addition to the competitors, they have bigger boats, 45, 50, 55 foot sailboats sailing along in different areas of the fleet mm -hmm. that are fully crewed. Yeah. There might be four or five or six people on these bigger boats and they're in constant satellite so they, communication. So they're crash boats in a sense? Yeah, and they are, so the race committee will call them up and say, we just got a tone from Acadia saying he broke his mask. This is his position. Can you vector over and make sure that he go, really Go check it out. Yeah. And it, they aren't there in hours. When I did this, they showed up maybe 35 hours later, a boat came by. Mm -hmm took pictures of me, got on the VHF radio. They were close enough that I could use a handheld radio. They were you know, mm -hmm. a few hundred yards away. And I said, yeah, I'm okay. You know, I'm going. And they saw I was heading towards the eight stores. And so they sailed on and waved and let the race committee know that I was okay. You have, uh, you have a fair amount of safety built in, but they are 21 foot boats and you're on the boat alone. Yeah. Um, and they can be pretty intimidating at night when mm -hmm. you're sailing along with a lot of sail. Yep. And you've got the autopilot on or, or you don't. I mean, the top sailors, and I learned after a while, if you have a lot of winds, I don't, you know, 20 knots or more, mm -hmm. and you have big spinnakers up to big sails in front of the boat, if... You want to do well, usually in those conditions, the autopilot on these little boats just for the most part could not handle the activity. You would roll back yeah, too and much, forth on too waves. much. Right. And so it, you're just hand steering go, these boats all night. 
in those conditions, if you wanted to push as hard as you could and be right up there, you you might hand steer it for 25, 30 hours straight. Whoa. You would have plastic tubs sort of in the cockpit and lime bags full of water and cliff bars. And, mm -hmm. and the only time you might put it on autopilot for, you know, a quick break was to get up and, you know, relieve yourself. And that was it. So this is like ultra marathoning is to run it. I mean, you know, it's you pretty, and you run through the Mojave Desert for 24 hours or something. That's what it sounds like. It, you can't, I, I think the longest I stayed awake for straight was uh, 45 or 50 hours. Jeez, whoa. And it, it isn't, that was in the first part of the mini transat race uh, going from La Rochelle to Madeira. Wow. And I, I, it, I was pretty delirious by the end of the day. I mean, I literally was hallucinating. I thought I had a crew member on the boat who wasn't help, helping me out. I'm like, why aren't they coming up on deck and helping right, me out? Right. And, you know, various things like that. And you'd snap out of it and go, wait a minute, you're on this boat alone. By yourself, and, right. Suddenly people were and, talking to you on the boat. Yeah. And you, I'd be so exhausted, though, You within five minutes you'd be back in this sort of delusion. Yeah. And, yeah. So you have to be really careful in those conditions that you're not climbing up around and you're strapped in with these harnesses. And but it's uh, in those conditions you have to hand steer the boat. Now, how much you're carrying your own water? You're carrying your own food, right? You carry your own. Uh, you carry your own food. It's all. For the most part, it's freeze-dried. Okay, but that means you got to add water to it. So you got water you tanks. You water, and I had a little camp stove, jet boil, it's called, boiled water right away. Right. And so at the beginning of the race, you could carry fruit, and you could carry crackers and peanut butter. And You're a big guy. It takes a lot to feed you for 24 hours. How much food do you spend? I mean, I would eat usually, you burn a lot of calories, yeah. even though you're you're not out water, you're burning a lot. And I would usually eat, you know, two packs of the freeze dried food a day, each pack okay. theoretically good for two people. Um, and I drank a lot of coffee. Some sailors would not drink coffee. They would say it would throw them out of the rhythm. I drank a lot of instant bag coffee. So you just um, take water, boil water, put the coffee in and drink it. Yeah. yeah. And then I would have, you know, Gatorade powders and various things like that. I would have goo packs that, you know, I was trying to stay somewhat healthy. And then the race committee for each race would have a specified amount of water you had to start the race with. Right. Okay. So for the mini transat race, it was, and we, there's nothing below on these boats. All there is is framing. Sure. There's no floorboards. There's no bunk. There's no. Oh, gas. so there's nowhere to sleep inside the boat. No, all you do is pack some sails in between the frames. So you're okay. Not laying out. Okay. And you literally fall asleep on some sail bags because uh, the inside of, especially the prototypes like my boat, mm -hmm. you had a big keel box in the middle of the boat with lines going back and forth to the canning handle. Um, I have water ballast tanks. Uh, I had a lot of framing down below in my boat, structural framing, mm -hmm. some of it taller, some of it not so tall, but yeah. so you would just pack stuff around and sleep on it. Got it. 
and you had a lot of duffel bags full of gear, safety gear, clothes, and everything you had on the boat, whether it was these duffel bags, sails, the water jugs that you were required to carry, you would move it all around based on the point of sale. They would sure. call it stacking. And you would have these nets, you could hold it over on one side. So if you were healing over really hard, you had the canning keel over the water ballast tanks full, you would take all the gear and put it on the windward sure. side of the boat. How did you keep from losing weight? I probably lost 10 pounds. That's all? So. Wow. I mean, I went from, I was fairly light at the start, but yeah, I went from like 160 to 150. There's heavy duty safety inspections before each race. They, and they come in and they certify that you have, I think for the mini transat race, I had to start the Madeira leg, okay. the big leg to Brazil with, I think it was five, five gallon uh, jugs. So 25 gallons of water. The game that everybody plays, they come and say, you have to start the race with this stuff. They don't tell you that after that, what has to be done, as long as you start the race. Oh, so the French just dump it over the side? Yeah, so I, I did the same. You got 25 gallons of water on the boat at seven pounds a gallon, uh, and it might have even been 30 gallons, and you got 200 pounds of water. Right. You would do stuff like jump out. If you've got five or six jerry cans of water down below, you dump out two or three of these jerry mm -hmm. cans okay. with the idea that hopefully when you get into the torrential rains of the doldrums, okay. the intertropical convergence zone, you would be able to fill some of your water back up again. So, And that yeah. worked out. Was there ever a time when you felt out of control? The most intimidating experience that I had on that boat was... Uh, when the trade winds kicked in south of the Canaries the first night, and it was, you know, finally you're out of the light air, you get going, you go, thank God. And it was, you know, in the day, early day when the breeze kicked in and you're going and you're surfing and it's a little scary because you're really going fast and the waves are getting big. And I had the biggest spinnaker head, you know, uh, spinnaker up on the, you know, huge pole, full main. And the boat was just flying and it got dark. And I thought, and again, we have limited input on winds. Sure. I, you know, uh, you, other than the race committee that would, you could maybe pick up, you could pick up uh, an offshore sort of thing from the Mateo France, the French weather system uh, service and the sure. and you could occasionally get some stuff, but a lot of times you didn't know. And so it got windier and windier and windier that night. And I thought, oh, I'll just hang on. I'm going to, I got to steer it. The boat can't handle an autopilot. Wind's going to die down. Oh, the wind's going to die down. I was going faster and the boat was out of control. Mm. And I was exhausted. And it got to be about midnight and I, and the wind kept building and it was up to, I don't know, 25 or. Yeah knots or so was the biggest sail plan I had. Ooh. And I was sort of paralyzed. I didn't know, I, I, I feared the autopilot could handle it for maybe five seconds or something. Sure, and, and the last thing you want to do I, is break the autopilot, right? Yeah, and so I finally, 
got up the nerve. I was exhausted. My eyes were blurry. I was trying to keep an eye on the digital compass was what I was using to steer by. And you're just going as far downwind as you can without jibing or mm -hmm. if you head up too much, the boat will just keep going up with a weather helm. Just trying to concentrate. And I finally said, you got to do it. You got to take the sail down. And I had eight different cleats where you can do a quick, quick release lever on top of my cabin house. Okay. And they, you know, one main halyard is one, a jib halyard is one, uh, two spinnaker halyards. And I, I had to concentrate and I said, whatever you do, because I, when I put it on autopilot, mm -hmm. be far enough under the, by the wind, I would let one line go, it's called a guy line and the spinnaker would collapse behind the main and then I would quickly blow the halyard and pull it in underneath. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, put it on the autopilot. And I hope you pulled the right, I mean, the correct line. You obviously got there. And we're 13th out of 80-plus finishers. What has changed in the 15 years since you did the transat? More and more radical. They, uh, the, the latest ones are the, uh, starting about six years or eight years ago so again it's every two years so it would have been maybe the 2006 uh 15 race mm -hmm. these designers again mostly basically french designers came up with what they called a scow bow which was you know scows are the lake boats in the sure. u.s they have these big round yeah. bows hmm. They start putting these on these mini transat boats again to give them not only more form stability, but when the boat surfs down waves, it, it tended to submarine less. Right. So it's push them even harder. And you had that much more volume. Mm -hmm. you, not only was the 10 foot beam starting in the middle going to the stern, but the 10 foot beam started forward in the middle. I right. mean, it was just incredible, these things. And everybody at the beginning, when the first one came out, I can remember they're like, all right, that's great when you're going downwind of the doldrums. But after that, when you're sort of going close, fetching south, actually by then, excuse me, the no, the, that race that that person did went to Brazil. After that, mm -hmm. it went back to Guadalupe. But okay. people are saying when they get in the southeast trades and you're Close fetching, the wind's more forward. You can't use spinnakers. The waves are more forward of the beam. Sure. The boat is just a hobby horse itself to death. Well, right. it didn't happen. And the guy cleaned up. He beat everybody by a day. Yeah. So that became the trend, was that. And now it's hard to believe, but they've actually introduced foils on these boats. Foils indeed on a 21-foot boat. It's a water-ballasted moth with a sprit-launched chute in the middle of the Atlantic. And as Clay points out, the French dominate this event for a reason. They're nuts. Thanks, Clay, for bringing that trip, trip of a lifetime, to life for us. Thanks to Clay for leading off for the solo sailors and taking the time with the Conversations with Classic Boats audience. I'm sure you've inspired our listeners to go out and do something completely different, to follow a dream in boats and talk about it. 
And thanks to all the Mystic Seaport Museum team that led us to these gentlemen. Christina Brophy, Chris Freeman, Crystal Rose, Sophia Mastis, and many more. Thank you, listeners, for joining us for what is our 25th episode. Ta-da! We debuted May 5, 2020. And remember, always go back to the website. That's conversationswithclassicboats.com and listen to any of the episodes in the library. See the pictures in the gallery. That's the great thing about podcasts. You listen whenever and wherever you want. And as usual, give us your ideas for future podcasts. Boats, friends, give us a shout. We enjoy hearing from you. And when you listen, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or on the website, www.conversationswithclassicboats.com and give us a review. Five stars, please. Tell us what you think about this and other episodes. Remember, at least half of our shows have come from listeners. And a final 2022 shout-out to our media partners, Team One Newport and Wincheck Media. Team One with Mar- Mad Martha. Not angry, just a little bit crazy. Find all those good Team One products at TeamOneNewport.com, either at the Newport store on Thames Street or down the block at the Newport Patagonia location. Help them help you enjoy going into a great 2023. Winchek Media, Sailing the Northeast. Find them free at a thousand plus locations. 15,000 copies a month going to sailing households from New York to the Cape. Find them at windcheckmagazine.com. Great people to do business with. That's it for 2022. This podcast was written by Tom Darling and produced by Griffin Bengroff. Production input came from Jason Ross. And remember, Get out there on the water. Take care of yourself and someone else if you can. Fair sailing, Tom Darling. And we'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old chariot along. And we'll all